How many of you here in the sanctuary tonight are prone to ignore warning signs? Raise your hands. If you're a man, your hand probably ought to be up. I, I, think, I think most of us, for a couple of different reasons, but chief among them, when we see warning signs, we wonder if the sign is necessary. We wonder if the sign is real. We wonder if the sign means what it says. And in my case, I'm just rebellious. I said that because inside of each one of us, there's a little rebelliousness still left. Amen? And I think it's important for us to recognize that. Because there's not a perfect person in this room. And so the Apostle Paul, as he writes the remainder of these verses here in chapter 10, gives us some stellar, absolutely magnificent counsel with regard to our own well-being as it applies to who we are as human beings as we attempt to obey the warning signs here in this world. Because the Holy Spirit will give you a warning. And so we find here that God is speaking to each one of us tonight and reminding us that we need to listen up when the Holy Spirit speaks. Would you pray with me and we'll dig in at verse 12 tonight. Father, we thank you uh, that you don't leave us here as orphans. You don't allow us to be tested beyond that which we're able to bear. Lord, that your word is true, that there is nothing that we face that in you we are not able to resist. And so God, pray that you would speak to us tonight through this amazing passage of scripture, your truth, so that we might grow from it. And Lord, serve you better while we're here on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 10. And therefore, now he's obviously again looking back, reminding us of what's already been said, that we need to learn from our past, amen? So that that history lesson that we got last time is now being illustrated moving forward. It doesn't do you any good to read history unless you can learn from it. And so here comes the learning from the children of Israel. Therefore... Because they were delivered by a gracious, mighty God, because grace was showered upon them, because like them, uh, we've been chosen by God for good works, to do things for him. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. The danger of spiritual pride. And it is huge. And it it doesn't bypass pastors. It doesn't bypass Sunday school teachers. It doesn't bypass anyone. The danger that we have of walking with the Lord for any length of period of time is that we start to ignore warning signs. The things that we ourselves might teach someone else is truth. We ourselves toy with. We ourselves look at and say, well... You know, I'm spiritually strong. This is not a big deal for me. Sure, I wouldn't tell someone else it's okay, but 
I am super Christian. See my S? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And now a verse that if you do not have it highlighted and underlined in your Bible, I want to strongly encourage you, if you're one of those people that think that there are things in this life that you cannot resist, that your propensity to those things is too strong, that you have a disease, you have a genetic disposition towards something that the Bible calls sin, as a believer, and hear very carefully what I'm saying, as a believer... This applies to you, and there are zero, count them, zero exceptions. None. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. In other words, there ain't nothing new. There's no temptation that you will face that hasn't been faced before. There's nothing that's coming your way that other people haven't experienced. There there will be nothing ever in your life, no temptation that isn't common to all of humanity. God didn't make you a special case for abuse. God did not make you incapable. And so here's what follows next. And some of you may not like it. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, as you look at that verse, it's pretty plain what it's saying. So one of the strongest teachings in all of the Bible about where we stand with regard to temptation and sin You see, temptation itself is not sin. It is a temptation to sin. Temptation is an enticement. It's something that draws out of you those three enemies' ability to afflict you, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is that temptation that those three entities use to draw you away from the things of God, and there's not a single thing you'll ever face that someone hasn't faced before you, very specifically the Lord Jesus himself. In every way of your humanity, Jesus was tested by Satan himself and each time responded back with exactly one thing and that was the word of God. Throw yourself down from this mountain for surely the angels will bear you up. I know you're hungry. Why don't you tell these stones to become bread? And each time Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Has God not said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? He responded with the word. That was Satan himself testing Jesus. And each time Jesus fought back with the same weapon that's available to you, his own word. And so as you think on this very simple introduction... You may be thinking to yourself, well, I was born this way. You may be believing what the world has said is the disease model tonight as a believer. That for six generations, your family has 
borne the difficulty of genetic disposition to alcohol or drugs, sexual sin, thievery. They're working on that one now to find the stealing gene. Seriously. All that they're confirming is man is predisposed to sin. We already know that. Amen? Amen. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a person that's ever been born that is not predisposed to sin of some flavor and kind. But because you have a predisposition to something, as a believer, and hear me really well, as a believer... An unbeliever has almost zero chance of fighting sin because the power that you have as a believer is the same power that created the universe. An unbeliever doesn't have that, but you do. So you can resist the temptation to those things which the world says you are powerless to resist. Israelites had all kinds of pictures of God's grace, witnessed his miracles. And yet, they themselves still fell. Amen? That's their story. Ten times with Pharaoh. Here, stuttering Moses goes to Pharaoh, and each time the Lord shows himself faithful by sending a plague. The final plague, the angel of death is going to descend on the Egyptians and God miraculously spares the Israelites who would do one thing and one thing only. That's put the blood on the doorpost of their window or doorpost of their house and the lintels of their windows. That's it. Not exactly protection from death physically, amen? Makes zero sense actually physically. If you were to go into the hospital and a doctor said to you, well, I want you to take some blood and smear it on the, the door jam and put some over the top of the door and that's going to cure you of cancer, most of you would go, are you kidding me? No radiation, no whatever. That is the equivalent of what the children of Israel did by faith. The firstborn are going to die and here's what I want you to do. If you'll do it, you'll be saved. Your firstborn will live. It starts there. Pharaoh gets a little tweaked. They run to the Red Sea. Their backs are to the sea. They turn around and the entire army of Egypt. On horseback, chariots, bows and arrows, and you've got a bunch of half-dead farmers, nearly naked, who ran out of their homes so fast they didn't bother to bake their bread, hence the blood of Passover is unleavened. And God miraculously delivers them and destroys the Egyptians. Then they get on the other side. And they're in the Sinai. Probably the most desolate place on planet Earth that isn't flat and sand. 
And they wander around for 40 years, and God himself leads them with a pillar of fire and a cloud, and they actually survive where there's no food and no water. The reason I'm giving you this backstory one more time, they fell. They fell. And they fell hard. They fell flat on their face. And they literally saw God do miracles. So, therefore, take heed lest you or me, we, us, fall. You can see God's grace. You can walk in his grace. You can experience his mercy. You can watch God do all kinds of things and you can still end up doing things that you shouldn't be doing if you will not resist the temptations that come to you. So in the wilderness, what temptations did they face? Well, you know, that stick in the mud, Moses is gone. He's been gone for 40 days. There's this vicious storm brewing up there on the mountain. We think he's dead. So let's party. We're going to get us, make us some cows out of gold. We're going to start to worship idols. That was after they had been miraculously delivered. This is super important because that's a picture of you and God's grace. God has delivered you from sin and death by the blood of his own son, Jesus. God has redeemed you back from the penalty of eternal damnation because of his own grace by the blood of his own son, Jesus. God has taken away the stain of that sin and that the righteousness of his own son Jesus has been placed in your account. Do you see the similarities? You see, if God allowed the children of Israel to face temptation which they refused to believe God could deliver them from and fell, I'm pretty sure we can too. So take heed. Listen up. The most liable to fall are those who think they can't or they won't. Take heed. A little caveat here. Be careful about making comparisons to yourself and other people. Because I can tell you where we all look. Someone who is worse than us. And you can always find somebody who's doing worse than you. That is not the standard. The standard is the Lord Jesus himself and your relationship alone with God. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to be standing there with other people to vouch for you. You're going to be standing facing the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and praise God by his grace and through his mercy for reward as a believer but you won't earn any of it. It'll all be by grace and it'll all be because you believed. Amen?
To that end, there's not one of us in here who's immune to temptation. I want to give you the New Living Translation because I really like it on verse 13. But remember that the temptations that come into your life are no different than what others experience. And God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. And when you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you will not give in to it. You get the picture? We need to realize our weaknesses. We need to admit them, confess them. As a believer in Christ, you will not ever, hear this well, you will not ever face a temptation that you cannot resist. So stop saying it was too hard. Because it was not too hard. It may have been very hard, horrifically hard, monumentally difficult, agonizingly painful. It can be all kinds of things, but it cannot, because Scripture says so, ever be so hard you can't resist. Tough as a bed of nails? Absolutely. Requiring every ounce of your strength and the Holy Spirit's power? Absolutely. But impossible? Is there anything impossible for God? There isn't. So we have to stop buying the world's version of temptation. The world's version of temptation says, I can't help myself. Like the old show, Sanford and Sons. The devil made me do it. You remember that show? Wasn't me. No, it was you. And the devil only tempted you to do it. He didn't make you do it. You did it. Book of James gives us a lot of insight. I encourage you to read the whole book sometime during this week. It's short. Amen? The secret to resisting is recognizing the source. And so God promises you that you can resist. I make, make some of you mad tonight. You're probably going, oh, you haven't lived my life. You don't live with my husband. You don't live with, I, I, nobody can resist that. I've heard a lot of things. I've had, I've had people give me excuses for why they robbed banks. I've had people give me excuses for why they murdered somebody. And again, I'm not insensitive to it. I realize it was hard. But we sin when we give in to the enemy's temptation. That is the plain teaching of Scripture. This is not little, some little side note. We have to realize our weaknesses. We have to learn to resist. And we have to lay hard on the promises of God. And to some degree, I encourage you to look at it more this way, that you would thank God for trusting the faith that you have that you would be able to withstand those temptations because God won't give you more than you can handle. So he sees in you the capacity to handle it. And so the lesson is so you can grow. You can be more useful. You can get better. And so can I. And so it begs a question, what's your escape plan? Because here's the problem. Some of us know this truth, but we don't do a thing with it.
So our escape plan is we dial up the devil and we ask if he wants to go camping. I'm going to show up. I'll be there at 5.30 tomorrow morning. And we're going to go exactly someplace we're not supposed to go because we're God's kids. We're going to dial up the thoughts in our heads that we're not supposed to have because we're God's kids. We're going to keep the same friends that we had that we got in trouble with the first time. And we're not supposed to do that because we're God's kids. So you better have an escape plan because I can tell you this. The devil's going to call your number. And he's going to keep ringing you up. He's going to go, hi. And he's not going to say, this is the devil. Hi, this is, this is, uh, this is your old boyfriend. This is your old partner you used to get high with. This is your old posse. We're throwing a party. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't, it doesn't, when you look on the phone, it doesn't say devil. You know how your thing you chose on your phone doesn't have his forked horns on there, does it? No, that's not what happens. It comes in very natural things that you just might entertain because there's still a little bit of that unredeemed man still left in us, that unredeemed woman. Running from those things is the first step to victory. Saying, you know what? I have no business taking this call. I have no business being friends on Facebook. I have no business following them on Instagram. And yes, I'm talking to some of you tonight. I have no business keeping that phone number in my contact list. I have no business keeping those emails on my secret file that nobody knows about. I have no business keeping that stash in the wheel well of the car just in case I get a little stressed out. We got to do better running, better resisting, better pushing back. Because we put ourselves in harm's way. And oh, the first time you may resist. But what about the second time or the third time? Or when the enemy throws another level of temptation on there and you haven't been running, you haven't been resisting, you've been retreating to that old man. It will not go good. You need to recognize people in situations that give you trouble. You need, to, you need to choose specifically to do what's right. We all do. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm teaching to you as one of you. These are things we all need to do. Every pastor on this staff, myself included, needs to do these things. We have to make covenants with our eyes. We have to choose to please the Lord. We have to decide right now today... I'm not going there. We have to deal decisively with these things. We have to pray. And here's the deal. The Holy Spirit is not going to tell you it's okay. 
you're going to know the difference as a child of God. You're going to have that pierced consciousness. You're, you're going to understand there's something wrong with these instructions. I don't know how many of you have ever gotten something in a box. You know, it came from Amazon, comes to your house, and you go to put it together, and you pull out the instructions, and it's for some other thing that isn't in the box, and you start to read the instructions. There is no part Z. There is no article X. It doesn't look like this. You start to look at the instructions and you go, the pieces I have here do not fit these instructions. If the pieces of your life do not fit the instruction of the word, you need to go take the thing and send it back where it came from, which is the pit of hell. Say, no, thank you. Don't need one of these. It's part of the escape plan. No means no. Not kind of, sort of, maybe. And there in James chapter 4, and you can again read this later, there's a seven-step victory plan there, and it begins with resisting the devil after you've submitted first to God. Commit your life to God, then resist the devil. You have to also run the right direction. Let's be honest about this. Sometimes we kind of, we kind of run like people who, who hear the incoming bombs in war and they don't know which way to go. We know which way to go. We run to the Lord. An awful lot of people run to their old friends. They run to things that make them comfortable. For me, I run to a can of almond roca. Like almond roca can cure everything. Except diabetes and heart disease and (laughs) obesity. (laughs) You see, it tastes good, right? I open up those little tasty golden morsels. and You know, you ever notice this? The first one you bite into like five or six pieces and you savor it. But after about the eighth one, you're like... (laughs) You don't even chew them. That's the way the enemy works in your life. The first one's just kind of like, well, you know, don't get too engaged here. That's not, that is not running the right direction. That's inviting the enemy to send you another temptation. To add to it. To entice in even a greater way. You've got to be close to the Lord. Notice what verses 14 and 15 say. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, we, we see the word idolatry and we immediately turn our brains off in our world. But idolatry is just simply anything that takes the place of the Lord. Anything that takes the place of the Lord. So don't skip over it just because you don't have a little golden calf in your living room. It's anything. It could be anything that you invest your life's essence into. If you're worshiping it with your time, talent, and treasure, that's an idol to you. Flee from it. Now notice what he says in verse 15. I love this. I speak as to wise men. He's assuming that because we are believers that we're actually listening to these things. He's writing the church at Corinth, the church that is steeped in evil. They live, they live in a really gnarly place to be a believer. He's saying, but I, I, I know that you're wise, so judge for yourselves what I say. 
Can I tell you that sometimes our greatest foes are family, friends, and familiar things and places? You've got to be careful. Because family sometimes does not exactly have an objective opinion of the situation from God's point of view. It is subjective based on the fact that they, at the end of the time, still want you to love them. So they kind of throw a little bit of the biblical objectivity out of it. Friends and family both do that. And those familiar places are are prone to get us into trouble, amen? So being wise, being careful, means that we look at these things correctly. Notice verse 16. The cup of blessing with which we bless is not the communion, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? In other words, we as believers, everything we are, everything we do, in essence, the substance of our entire life is based on the precious blood that was shed on Calvary's cross that Jesus said, as often as you drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. Remember what I did for you, Jeff. So we ask him a, a, a loaded question here. He says, look, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? In other words, the only way to blessing and the only blessing we can offer is through the grace that's come to us through the blood of Christ. He's making a very plain statement here. He's saying the only reason that you're different than the world is the blood of Christ. The only reason you have any power is the blood of Christ. The only reason that you get to go to heaven is the blood of Christ. Amen? It is our communion. It's where we fellowship. That's why we call communion, communion, koinonia. Close, intimate fellowship because of the blood of Christ, the cup. So anything that does not honor the cup of Christ doesn't belong in the life of a believer. Now some of you, ah, he's a legalist. No, I'm a realist. I know my propensity to excuse my own weaknesses. And so I speak to you as a brother in the Lord. Because we have weaknesses, we need to recognize that the only victory we have is because of the blood of Christ. Amen? So we need to honor it. We need to say, Lord, you paid to set me free, and you did not set me free so I could run back to the world. You set me free so I could be free from the world, so that I could stop doing those things that were destroying my life. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And so he just adds the other layer to it. The picture here is, of course, communion. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. He said, look, we are all in this together. There's not one of us that's going to get there some other way. When you talk to people, you ask them a simple question. Why are you going to heaven? You get all kinds of crazy answers. And they're, they're not bad. But very often they're also not correct. 
you're going to heaven because your sin has been washed away. You're going to heaven because the price of that sin was paid for by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. You're not going to heaven because you're now better than you used to be. You're not going to heaven because you've joined a church. You're not going to heaven because you memorized five Bible verses. You're not going to heaven because you took communion. The communion is a sign of what happened internally, the transaction that was made on your behalf by Jesus when he said for you to tell us thy father is finished, Jeff's sins are paid for. That's the picture. My sin's paid for. Why would I want to run back to that which was paid for with the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus? And I want to drive this home for you a little bit. Imagine for a moment you are at the crucifixion for reals. You're at the foot of the cross. And Jesus is hanging from the cross. And he's about to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he will follow it with, into thy hands I commit my spirit to tell us die. It's finished. And you say, wait a second. I need to go sin a little bit more. Could you hold up for just a minute? I've got some other stuff I want to do. We take Jesus back to the cross when we knowingly transgress against him. doesn't mean your sins aren't forgiven it means he gets another stripe now he died and it was sufficient but it's in effect saying i know you you bore a lot of lot for me on the cross but could you take another couple of wax i don't know about you but when i think about it that way It makes my skin crawl. It's like, Jeffrey, how dare you? Just saying. Powerful, powerful passage. Notice verse 18. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not all those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? In the Old Testament days when the Jews sacrificed They actually ate part of the sacrifice as a way of becoming one with it, becoming one with the gift. But some of them turned right around and did exactly what they'd been delivered from. That's a false kind of unity. That's not how we should view our Savior. He wants to truly be one with us. And so there are some steps to that. For me, I need, to, I need to focus on on the nature of God, the attributes of God, the holiness of God, who he is, what he's done. Have you ever thought that the creator of the universe himself gave his life for you in your place? 
When I focus on that, it's a little different when I look at my junk. When I see my stuff, I see it a little differently when I focus on the Lord. It's like, Lord, this is not worth you. These are simple things, by the way, but they are helpful. (laughs) Keep your mind and your ears open while keeping your mouth closed. Anybody have problems with that? No, don't raise your hand. Yeah, we say some things that put us in harm's way, don't we? We add to the ability the enemy has to tempt us by saying things that get us further down the path away from the Lord. I want to be closer to the Lord. I need to stay stay closed with that mouth. If you want real unity, I'm going to tell you there's a couple of people you ought to avoid. One of them is anyone who declares to you their own holiness. Anyone who tells you they've already arrived has not already arrived. You can just automatically assume if they tell you, well, I am the Holy One of Torrance, (laughs) that in fact they are not the Holy and Anointed One of Torrance at all. They might be a torrent, but it won't be of living water. Steer clear of those kind of people. They will measure you then by their standard, and they are not the standard. Jesus is the standard. Christ is the standard. A fourth thing, and I don't want to beat this one to death, but can I tell you, you you were not saved by principles. You're not saved by a movement. You're not saved by a denomination. You are not saved by a certain set of distinctives. You are saved by the precious blood of the Lamb. And so be careful about paying homage to that which is not the Lord Jesus. While history is good, if you are following traditions and disobeying Christ, you're in the wrong place. And I've met people simply because a certain group of people said something was okay, that they think their sin is okay. They think their disobedience okay. Be careful. Jesus died for people. He died for you. He died for me. He did not die for systems or methods, principles, things that we would call ways of ministry. Another thing, stay out in Jesus' name. Stay out of the endless arguments about who's what. One thing for me as a pastor to call out specific heretical things because I've been called to do that. Matter of fact, if I don't do that, Scripture says I am a bad shepherd. I have to do that. But we don't have to sit around and make note of every little distinctive in someone else's worship style or practice. Well, our church has an organ. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, that I don't go there. I've heard enough organ music in my days. I just, you know, it kind of hurts my ears. And some people would say the same thing about electric guitar. And so you have the organ people versus the electric guitar people. And the whole time, Jesus is not glorified. So skip it. It's not worth the argument. It's not important. Paul then says... 
Be careful who you eat with. And again, I want to give you the New Living Translation here. Verse 19, what am I trying to say? That the idols to whom the pagans bring sacrifices are real gods? That these sacrifices are of some value? And he says, not at all. He's not saying that, that there's power in the idols. He's not saying there's power in these false gods. He's saying there's power in what you believe about those false gods. He's saying if you put yourself in harm's way, you may end up in a place you don't want to be. What I am saying is that these sacrifices are offered to demons and not to God. And I don't want any of you to be partners with demons. He's saying, look, you don't want to buy into the world system. You don't want to inadvertently or purposefully put yourself in harm's way. Stay away from those things that might harm you. Because when you, when you sit down with, you, know, you, you make nice with the devil, he's going to hang around. You say, sure, I'll go out to dinner with you. He's going. You say, it, it, it's okay. You know, I, I know this is kind of a little on the edge, but could you just kind of help me out a little bit? He's going to help you out. You're going to find out you're going to have a great time temporarily doing some things that God's already told you not to do when you hang out with the enemy. So don't. You don't want to identify with the enemy. You don't want to be anywhere near him. And so to that end, you've got to be really careful. You know, people often will say, well, you Christians are intolerant. Not at all. Because the world needs Jesus. But we also can't be tolerant of the very things which Jesus died to set us free from. So we in the same breath can say, that's wrong, we shouldn't be doing it, and still love the person who is. The world doesn't understand that. You see, they associate the action and the person as one. The thing that they're doing is the person. The person's identity is determined by their sexual preference. The person's identity is determined by their desire for some type of sinful life choice. God doesn't see us that way. He sees the sin as sin. And he can save us from the sin and save our soul and make us like him. The world says that can happen. God wants to separate us out. It's the whole principle that we undertake when we begin our journey with the Lord of sanctification. And so the enemy tests us. The enemy tries us. The enemy throws things in front of us so that we'll run back to the world. Hang out where he can get to us. And so you've got to be sitting at the right place at the table. You've got to choose who you're going to eat with. If you choose to break bread with the enemy, he's perfectly happy to do it. He does not care that you profess Christ. In fact, he would love to shame you. He would love to destroy you. He would love to humiliate you. You know how many humiliated men and women I've had in my office where they cannot cry any more tears? There, there is no 
more water to flow from their eyes and their nose because they are humbled and humiliated because they can't believe that they did exactly the same thing they did the last time except this time it cost them their family. You see, that was the enemy saying, ah, it's it's really not that big a deal. I mean, we're just going over and we're going to have some chili dogs. Come on. Be careful. A second way to be careful is be careful because not everything is good for you. Verse 23 and 24. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Amen. Because the point here is your life in Christ. All things are not helpful for your life in Christ. They may even be legal. Can I tell you there's a lot of things in this world that are legal that are not okay with God. A ton of them. All kinds of things are perfectly legal, but they are not okay with God because they're not helpful. They don't edify. They won't build up. And this is a repeat from chapter 6, by the way. That's how important this is. All things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things don't edify. Two different ways to look at it. Helpful means to come alongside, to to be an advocate, to make you grow. To edify actually means to get you going in the right direction, to build you up. They won't make you grow. They won't build you up. There's all kinds of things that you can do. It's like that Jeff Goldblum in the first Jurassic Park. Sure, we can make these dinosaurs, but should we? That's the question. Yeah, we can do it. But unless you want a Tyrannosaurus Rex of sin in your backyard, you probably ought to not mess with the DNA. Amen? That's the picture. Lawful, you can do it. But should you? The answer to that is no. Let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. You see, that's the, the way we look at things. In essence, we are not so free as to be able to be free to do the very things we've been freed from. You got it? In other words, we're not free to sin. We're not free to go back to our old life. We're not free to do as we please. We're free to please the Lord. And see, the problem that we have is we think that freedom... It's just this unbridled sense of I can do anything. It's one of the main problems with our country right now. Is we've taken freedom to mean, well, let's just make everything legal. So what if it destroys our children's lives? So what if it takes advantage of innocent people? So what as long as it's good for me? That's the devil's version of freedom, to be honest. We are not free to choose our own way. We are free to choose to go his way. That's how free we are. That's our freedom. That's real Christian freedom. In essence, for those of you that know the Hippocratic Oath, the first line of it is that you first do no harm. So everything ought to be seen as, will this harm someone else? Maybe I can get away with it, but is it going to harm someone else? Is it going to destroy their life? 
It's going to make their life more difficult. You know, he throws this, this picture in here of eating meat. And, and to me, it's, it's kind of like, you know, why, why is that in there? But it actually made sense then. Because it goes back to where they are. They're in Corinth. And so as I shared with you, you know, some of them were going and getting the ball burgers from the temple, you know. They were showing up. The best barbecue was on the temple mount. And associated with the temple mount was prostitution, idol worship, all kinds of vile practices. And so you had some people that were saying, well, if I know that meat is from there, I'm not eating it. Verse 25, here's what you should do. You can eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace. Just don't ask whether or not it was offered to idols. And again, this is the new living. Look, there are some questions that probably are not necessary for you to ask. And I watch Christians sometimes, they are so meticulously specific at trying to find the demon behind every rock that they are miserable human beings to be around and nobody wants to be anywhere near them. Because they're trying to find, you know, well, I think some, there was a demonic goat that, you know, gave some of its milk to this cheese. I, you know, I'm praying over, you know, it's like after a while, look, let me give you a clue. Everything in this world has been touched by evil at some point in time. Everything. If you've paid for it with money, there's some evil. If it's in this country, we got a few things we need to square away with God. Amen. It's automatically of this world. You cannot free yourself from it. That's what Jesus just said in John chapter 15. You're in it. You're not of it. I've called you out of it, but you're still here. So Paul's now saying, look, sometimes we stress out over these things. Don't ask whether or not it was offered to idols, and then your conscience won't be bothered. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Ultimately, the Lord's going to redeem the whole planet. Amen? So I, I think to the legalist, I want to say, you, you don't need to, to get out your demon meter for every cube of butter. Don't ask. I, I literally have talked to people who researched the CEO of corporations to find out if they've ever worshipped Satan. I'm serious as a heart attack. It sounds ridiculous and absurd. I recognize that. But that's how far this can go. Everything in this world has been touched by evil. So if you think you can get out of it, the only way to get out of it is getting out of this world, and that isn't happening until Jesus takes you home. So until then, you're going to have to deal with the fact that not everything is perfect. But he who is in you is perfect. So relax a little bit to the legalist, to the libertine, the other side. Your liberty does not free you to go do things that Scripture says you ought not do. So to you, no, you're not free to go back to that party lifestyle. You're not free to go smoke up and toke up. You're not free to go hook up. You're not free to do any of those things. Those things are all not okay with God. And God's not going, well, you know, that's now holy fornication. 
Believe it or not, I've actually had people tell me that they thought their fornication was sanitized because they were both believers. I am deadly serious. Well, we're both Christians, so God knows that we love each other. No, God knows that you lust after each other, and God knows that you're fornicating. And he's not okay with it. So to the libertine person, you need to run the other way and meet in the middle. Balance it with grace. Don't fret as a legalist and don't be so free as you sin as a libertine. Meet in the middle. That's where you find the grace of the Lord. To do that, just put other people first. Think of the Lord first. Our whole focus should be other-centered. You know, sometimes when we think through some of the things that we do, we, we almost throw out the obvious. Verse 27, if some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. Just do it. It's fine. God knows your heart towards that person. You want to be able to share the gospel with them. And so what it's Indian curry and, you know, the guy's got one of those Hindu, you know, they're Shivas hanging from his mirror or something. Go tell him about Jesus. That idol hanging from his rearview mirror is not the power of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? You're not, you're not going to go to hell because you had some curry from some dude who has Shiva hanging from the, his mirror. God needs you to go share the Lord with them. God wants you to go share the Lord with them. But if anyone asks you, was this offered to idols? Don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you. For conscience sake, the earth is the Lord in all of its fullness. He's saying, look, if it matters to somebody else, here's the flip side of it. He goes, wow, that really offends me. So to the one person, go share Jesus with him. The other person, you know what? If that bugs you, I won't have it. You see the balance? It's the other person. It's not you at all. To the one person who needs Jesus and has no idea that that's a false idol hanging from his rearview mirror, to him you go, man, that's the best curry I ever had. And to the person who asks you to go and you get there to the restaurant and there's two believers and say, man, this whole place is covered with idols. It creeps me out. Then don't go in. You say, wow, that's that's duplicitous, Jeff. No, it's not. Because the whole focus is the other person. And so to one, it is sin. To the other, it is not sin. It's that sin. Simple. To him who knows it's sin, it is sin. So the Lord says, look, just be careful. Put other people first. You'll make the right decision. For the earth is the Lord with all of its fullness. Now, why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? Verse 29 says, if I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? Whatever you eat and drink, do whatever you do, all of it do to the glory of the Lord. There's the secret. Others first, and can you say I did it for the glory of the Lord? Give no offense 
either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Amen? Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. We're going to have some of the pastors be available. and Maybe you got an idol. Maybe you need to just pray for it. Maybe you got somebody who's struggling with something. You want to pray for them. Maybe there's something going on in your own life and you're kind of like, man, I, I, I think I'm a legalist over here, but I'm a libertine over there. Look, the Lord loves you. The Lord has showered us with grace. So don't let the enemy beat you up. Tell him to go back where he belongs. You don't belong to him. He has no control over you. There is no temptation but that which is common to man. And in it, the Lord has provided a way of escape. Father, thank you that that is true. Lord, we can't be overtaken. We can give in because you are faithful and you won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. And in those temptations, you will make a way of escape. And so, Lord, tonight maybe some have run the wrong way. Lord, maybe some have not been other-centered. Maybe some tonight are just walking so close with you and they're enjoying that cup or they're in deep fellowship with you and we praise you God for those that are we pray that you would cause them to prosper and grow pray that they'd get involved in other people's lives helping them uh, to reach that place that they already are and so Lord would you make us mindful that none of us are immune to temptation none of us Lord are going to be on this earth and be completely victorious in all things unless we are completely hidden in you. And so, God, we ask you to take our lives and hide us in Christ. Make us like you, Jesus. Make us resilient and strong. We love you. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy to us, that mercy that's new every morning. We pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.